Lord, we thank you so much for uh, this opportunity tonight to uh, look into your word one more time. We thank you for, for the past five weeks, for Sue and for her willingness and her zeal to uh, share what she spent years and years looking at and just being able to give us a little bit of what she gleaned over that time of study. We pray, Lord, that this evening would also be uh, just another opportunity to take something, something home new that we didn't have when we came. I pray that for each person here tonight. I pray for you to speak uh, through Sue with your message for, for us, uh, each one of us tonight, Lord. In Yeshua's name, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Rabbi. Okay, well, it is week six, and we've week come a six. long way. I know. This is the last one. This is it. This is the last one. Six weeks Yep. Six weeks I thought I saw it on the calendar. Nope. This is it. So we started off in our first week with Genesis 1 and and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we noted how throughout that first chapter of Genesis, God creates by simply speaking. He speaks all things into existence. And the power of his word is what brought about all things in the absence of any kind of cosmic conflict. And then we moved through the prophets and the writings and saw how God as creator of heaven and earth is used in those different contexts. We saw that it was used in prayers, in worship, in interaction with um, non-Israelites. And then we moved into the New Testament the last couple of weeks, and we saw how Yeshua was using this description of God in a prayer to the Father, um, referring to him as Lord of heaven and earth. And then we found out in that passage that the Father and the Son have a very unique relationship. And part of that relationship means that the Son is the one who reveals the Father to others. Mm -hmm. And then as we looked at the epistles in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, we saw that the early church really recognized that and um, developed that idea in such a way that they, it was apparent that they realized that Yeshua was actually not just involved in the creative process, but was also regarded as the creator, as one with God, so to speak, also deity. And then we saw last week in Acts how the early church, once Yeshua uh, was crucified, buried, and raised, returned to the right hand of the Father, that the early church then carried on the ministry of Yeshua in proclaiming boldly God's word, again, and asking God to perform miraculous signs, signs and miracles, to go along with the proclamation of his word. And much as we've seen throughout our studies in the last few weeks, that the word of God and his actions together indicate that he is the one true living God in contrast to the idols. So tonight we're going back to this, uh, uh, this idea of God's word. We're going to go into uh, a lot, we're going to spend a lot of time in Second Peter and a little bit in Revelation where this description of God as creator of heaven and earth occurs. And what we find out in Second Peter in particular, there's a real emphasis once again on the word of God and the powerful word of God. If you open with me to Second Peter chapter 1, the beginning of the letter, 
it says, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, to those who through righteous, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, of Yeshua. Um, again, I'm reading from the NIV. And then in verse verses 3 through 10, Peter focuses in on a message that he wants this body of believers to really grasp. He says that his divine power, referring to God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious, what? Promises, right? So that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So here again we're seeing that God has given his promises, his word, to his people for a certain purpose. And that it's through his great and precious promises that uh, we may become partakers with him in the divine nature and that, and that we can live a holy life. We can live in harmony with the creator. Then he goes on in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting what? That they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach. So here we see a whole list. Um, in this time period, uh, this kind of list that we see in, in verses 5 through 9 is typically referred to as a virtue list. It's a list of things that um, these people are to begin to embody in their lives and express in their lives. It's a, talking about their lifestyle. And in our prayer time just before uh, we started the Bible study tonight, someone had prayed that, you know, may, may we work through conflict with one another in the body, in our mishpacha as a family. And I think that's part of what's involved in this virtue list here, of having mutual affection and love for one another. That all of these things are really based on who we are now in Yeshua, in our identity. And, and then that's based on God's promises to us. But there's a problem in the church that Peter addresses. And that is that there were false teachers influencing the believers. So what Peter does in this next section of his letter is he's giving evidence for the, the message that he's giving them. What's the basis of his message? And it's fascinating. In verse 12 and following it says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I, I will soon put it aside as our Lord uh, Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see 
that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now, what we hear here is Peter knows his life is coming to an end. And it's likely, from what we can piece together, that this is right before Peter is um, martyred under Nero's rule. And he knows that this is going to come. And so he's imparting his last words to these people that he cares very deeply about, which should help us realize that these are really important words for him to be imparting to these people. But then he goes on and gives the basis for, for what he is saying and why he is communicating these things. In verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when, you t- when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What is he referring to here? What event in the life of Yeshua? He uses those words at his baptism. But when we look at the next verse, it says, We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain the transfiguration so not only at his baptism but also then at the transfiguration and this is when Peter, John and James went to the mountaintop with Yeshua and they saw this incredible sight and I think of it as you know God was kind of lifting lifting a veil of our normal life here and showing the glory of the sun to these three, and um, they were realizing this is just no human person here, and this is part of the unfolding that Yeshua was doing and what the Lord was, the Father was doing to reveal who Yeshua is to his disciples. So he's saying our eyewitness account, um, that's how we know about his majesty. And then in the next verse, verse 19, we also have what? The prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke what? from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, what he is saying is we have the testimony of God's very words as spoken through the prophets. So again, we're going back to what has God said to us? And can we trust it? Well, yes, because we've seen with our eyes the majesty of Yeshua, and we know that he's coming back. And we also have the prophetic word of the scriptures, God's word to us about these things that concern us. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, in in the NIV, it starts with a very important conjunction. (laughs) Maybe some of you have the same word that starts, but. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. 
bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. So what we have here is a contrast between God's word, true words, and false words. And what we find out about these false teachers, especially as we continue through chapter 2, is that their lifestyle is being indicative of who they are. And being that they are involved in, well, we've got a little bit of it um, in these about their uh, their greed and exploitation. And the brazen and arrogant. Yes, yes, being arrogant. Um, and then, well, we'll get to we'll get to some of their other um, character qualities. Well, how their character is being displayed in their lives. Um, Yeah, the, the, uh, the early churches in some ways faced similar challenges with false teachings and challenging challenges to the word of God and how, how they need to deal with this. That's what, why these letters are so valuable to us. Are we facing those kind of problems ourselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we are. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I kind of really feel like this pretty much says it all based on, you know, what was when when the Catholics got together and what did they do? That's that seems like in the Western world, and maybe it was before because I'm not a scholar of biblical history, but you know, when the Roman Catholic Church came around and they decided what books would be in the Bible and they came up with their own philosophy of you know what what things said instead of what they do say. And I think that's a lot what the heresies are, is people putting their own twist on things rather than reading the word. And it just seems like it's been that way, just like what you said, ever since. And it's that way now. Yeah, there's nothing new under the sun, which is actually an encouragement to me. That, okay, <laughs> even though I'm surprised regularly by what I see happening and what I hear from people, I think, okay, Lord, you are not surprised. You know, this has been going on in different ways, in different forms. And, and yes, the early church, I mean, the reason why many of the, the councils happened was to deal with heresies that were starting to erupt in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. 
And so you hear some of that dialogue in the early church. Um, but I think what's, what's so um, significant when, we, when we're talking about Second Peter here, yes, there are, I think there are many themes, many issues that we see in this letter that the church in the first century was dealing with that, that will relate pretty closely to some of the things we're facing now. It might sound a little bit different, but some of the underlying currents are very similar. And so what Peter is communicating to the believers at this point, I think, is, is really significant for us to also listen to. And so when we look at some of the verses, for example, um, let's see, 2.21 Actually, let's start up a little bit higher in verse 17 and get down to 21, chapter 2. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. So again, see what kind of promises these false teachers are making in contrast to the promises of God that we were just looking at at the beginning of the, of the letter. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of what? Depravity, corruption. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Yeshua Mashiach, and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred, what, command that was passed on to them. Again, command, promises, these are God's words to us. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Yep. Two, two uh, quotes from Proverbs. And these, these false prophets are just not <laughs> the kind of people to be keeping company with. And so not only are they, it also reminds me of our study in Proverbs. The way of wisdom versus the way of folly. And these people are choosing the way of folly versus the way of wisdom, God's way, following God's words. They're going off on their own. But what's, what's kind of at the root of this? What's part of the issue? Because just as, just as there were false prophets among the people of Israel, again, the false teachers will surface in the church today. And rather than living in accordance with the redemption that they received, and it, it sounds like these are, are true believers who have come into the community of believers and then turned away, which sounds a lot like what may be happening in Hebrews. And we don't know for sure. One way of understanding these two proverbs, um, a dog returning to its vomit or a pig, a sow um, after being washed returns to wallowing in the mud, some would say, well, these may indicate that these really weren't true believers. They were kind of going through the motions of being believers, but in a sense, a dog is a dog, and a pig is a pig. There's no transformation that was happening. 
there. That may be the point here. It's a little hard to say. But there are times when it sounds like these really are, are believers. So again, just like, like in Hebrews, some of the warnings there. Yeah. And I was reading you. It's about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually quite a bit of overlap between Jude and Second Peter. So again, this is not unusual or it's not particular to one church, um, the struggles that they're dealing with here. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Is it also, we're talking about struggle of what they learned about who the Messiah is and they accepted it, but is it also the persecution, physical persecution they're, they're living with? In Second Peter, we don't really hear a lot about that being a factor. No, I know, as I'm saying. And yeah. I'm feeling that because what would pull someone away if you know that, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not going to, my business or my survival, or my, I go to church today, Christians today, mm-hmm. to stand up for what they learn. It seems like, you know, it's not mentioned, and yet it's within the confines of what they're up against mm-hmm. in the society. Well, there definitely are views in the, in the culture of the empire that are in opposition to uh, biblical beliefs. Yeah, so there's always that kind of, of tension. But, but look, Peter, he, doesn't, he dies not long after this. So the people who he's talking to know the risk that he's taken just t- telling them of the, the strength they're supposed to develop. Yes, that could be, that could be. And there is discussion about that. We're, we're, we're somewhat limited in how much we can know life was like in the first century. We're talking a couple thousand years ago. It seems that under Nero, which would have likely been this time, that the persecution was pretty heated for a period of time between about 64 and 68 when, when Nero um, took his own life. But it was also probably pretty localized to Rome which is where we think Peter was when he was writing Well, I'm not saying there wasn't persecution. What I was saying was that in Rome, it would have been the most heated persecution close. And so in other parts of the empire, if this is the same audience of First Peter, it would have been more in the region of where modern-day Turkey is. So there would have been local persecution but not the type of persecution that would have been under the emperor in Rome and in its, in its provinces. But Peter was in Rome. That yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh-huh, yeah. But who the letter that this is addressed to is probably people who are elsewhere in the empire, maybe, if it's the same audience as First Peter. Maybe it's only warning because it was as a common concept, you know, it was kind of common concept to his martyrs, Under Domitian, it was probably more, yeah, much worse actually than under Nero and more widespread. But that would have probably have been, you know, 30 or 40 years after. Well, I know all the time I'm Right. Yes. Yes. So what? What? Um, what Peter seems to be warning is that because the way of truth will be spoken against or blasphemed. In chapter 2, verse 2, we read that. 
that many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Um, the, the problem is that they have rejected the promises and commands of God. Not only are they then subject to fleshly desires, but they also are promoting these lies. So it sounds like what's happening with these believers and would relate to the opening that we had just read about uh, Peter exhorting the believers to cling to the promises that they have and realizing that God has given them the ability to live a holy life right before we got to this virtue list. And that if, you, uh, that if you make every effort to confirm your calling and election, if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. So it sounds like these people have turned from the very things that Peter was in- encouraging them to do. Why, we're not altogether sure. But this is the threat that seems to be at stake here. And so it's, it's showing up in their lifestyles. Throughout the letter, then, there is an emphasis on the words of God, which is central to chapter 3 in particular, which is where we get to this description of God as creator of heaven and earth. And that's under uh, point 2 in your notes, that God is patient and not asleep. When we get to chapter 3, in their greed, the false teachers will exploit believers with false words. That's what we were just reading. Yet the judgment against them is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In verse 3 of um, it's actually in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. So here these false teachers are active (laughs) and spreading their false teachings. And the impression that they're getting is that, ah, you know, there's no judgment. They can do whatever they want. God's words, his commands, his promises, it's not really going to happen. But what they don't realize is that God is not asleep during this time. God is being patient during this time. And that's what we we pick up in chapter 3 when we... um, Start at the beginning, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall what? Again, the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this? coming he promised ever since our ancestors died everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation so this is what the false teachers are saying essentially where is this coming that God promised nothing has changed since creation so basically they're going to live the way they want to live verse 5 says but they deliberately forget That long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, 
It's not that these false teachers deny that God created all things. Um, in verse 4, it says just that everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So what they're questioning really is, where has God shown up? And even the flood, it sounds like. They recognize, yeah, Sharon. I was just thinking with the false prophets of four, where's this promise of his coming? This is that same spirit that the serpent had in the garden when he approached Eve. You sure you're not going to die if you eat this fruit? Not denying the fruit, but, you know, putting in that same question. Spirit. Yeah. Questioning, did God really say. Yeah. <laughs> Did he really say he's coming back? Really say that? Yeah, and did he say he's really coming back? Because if he's coming back in judgment, that's one thing. But you know what? According to these false teachers, we haven't seen anything. So they're just that that's going that is just fueling their decisions to live the way they want to according to the flesh. Mm-hmm. I thought this was really a curious verse because here it's talking about how God destroyed by the flood and then in the future will be fire. Mm-hmm. But um, when you go back to 2 in my Bible, mm-hmm. 2 5, it says, He did not spare the ancient world. So we know that there was there was life in the world before Noah, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know, I don't really know what that was exactly, but why? Yeah, well, if you read Genesis 1 through about chapter 6, that's when you start to. Uh, hear about Noah and preparations for the flood. You have the generations from Adam and Eve to Noah getting progressively more and more wicked. Yeah. And then God brings judgment um, on on the world through the flood. And I think we had mentioned that a little bit early on, and I had said that we're going to come back to it because Second Peter is bringing this very topic up. So yes, in chapter 3, he brings up the Flood. Mm-hmm. By these waters. Okay, so, well, before we get to verse 6, though, they deliberately forget that long ago God's word, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So, again, Genesis 1, remember we were talking about the waters being separated and a vault, and then on the earth the waters were parted, separated, gathered together, and then the land was um, was shown. So here, water is being described at, in a positive way as creating this habitable environment. That's one of the things that we talked about in Genesis 1. What we see God doing is creating three realms, heaven, earth, and sea, and then populating each with life. And of course, humans live on the earth. So we see God creating this habitable environment by gathering the waters or separating the waters for the land to be revealed and people to live there. With the flood, what happens then is the waters come and cover this habitable environment that God has created. And that seems to be the judgment that God is making against who? Ungodly people. So it's the people that he has created to populate this, the earth that he then destroys that habitable environment by way of judgment. Now, does that mean that the earth vanishes? 
Well, no. I think the destruction has to do with the fact that it's not habitable anymore. They have to be on an ark, <laughs> which God provided the instructions for, and he does save the righteous. So they're really continuing to talk about the character of God that's being brought in. Mm-hmm. That he does seek out the righteous ones. No. And he protects the righteous right. in light of the unrighteous. Yeah. And then, to Peter, they know all this. They know what's happening. They must be pretty learned people. He's being challenged by intellectuals. You know what I mean? to realize the truth of the old history hmm. and then also the knowledge of Messiah having come to, for the Jew mm-hmm. but also coming for the Gentiles for all, everyone you know, to open their ears because you know what just like God destroyed the land with water he could repeat it, know who you're dealing with well and that's what, what Peter goes on to say and what uh, um what Sharon was pointing out in verse 6 and 7 here. Mm-hmm. But these waters also, uh, the world of that time was, by these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for what this time? Fire. Fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there is going to be a time when the ungodly, the unrighteous, again will be judged. And again, you know, people describe, well, you know, what's it going to look like when that happens? And there's a conversation that that arises, well, why bother taking care of the environment now if God's just going to burn it all up? Well, <laughs> we're still to be his representatives and stewards of what he's given us as his habitable environment now. Yeah, and it does sound like, again, because of the parallel here made to chapter 2, the flood and the description there of the flood destroying the earth with water, the destruction of the earth with fire, seems to mean that it's not necessarily just going to be annihilated. No. But God is going to make it new. He's going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. Just purify like you do in a sense, yeah, of, of purifying. And um, uh, I'm jumping around here. Well, that is what we're going to get to. And one of, the, one of the points that I wanted to bring out was when it, it talks about how the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. It's the same term, formed, meaning sustained, that we saw when we studied Colossians 1. 
Do you remember what Colossians 1.17 said about Yeshua is the one who sustains all things, holds all things together? This is the same word. In Hebrews, we also hear this same idea of Yeshua sustaining life, just like the word has formed and sustained. So again, showing that the word of God and Yeshua are functioning in similar ways to sustain. Now, what does John 1.1 tell us? In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word dwelt among us. And so John makes a direct connection between Yeshua as the word. But here also in Second Peter, and again, because there's so much emphasis in this book, this letter, on the word of God, his promises and commandments, even though Yeshua isn't mentioned explicitly all the way through the letter, he's definitely at the beginning and at the end. And this function of the word parallels the function of Yeshua regarding all things. Again, I think emphasizing what we've seen unfold over the last few weeks regarding the word of God and Yeshua and the action of God and, and judgment to come. So um, anyway, having covered, having at least said that, um, <laughs> we'll get down to what Karen was then saying. And we look in verse, um, verses 7 to 10. So we pick it up in 8. We've looked at 7. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. So he's asking them, don't forget. And again, if we had time to look at the, you know, the, term, the, the Greek terms behind all of this, he's asking them, don't forget, like he had said earlier, these false teachers deliberately forget about what God has done, not only creating the world but the flood and bringing judgment. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What verse is that? What is the chapter and the verse? Mm -hmm. It's uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. So here these false teachers are saying, oh, nothing has changed. Where is this coming <laughs> that he promised? It's not going to happen. And basically in saying that, that God is not going to keep his word is a reflection of what they think about God, mm -hmm. which is not good. <laughs> and what Peter is pointing out here is that, no, don't, don't think that God is unable to carry out his word. He will. This is his kindness. He is not asleep. He is patient. And he's being patient so that we may all come to repentance. And Schlatter, a German theologian from years ago, pointed out not only how this is an important statement about the kindness of God toward unbelievers, but even for believers, mm -hmm. as we live out what is true, which is what Peter was talking about at the beginning of the letter. Don't forget your calling and election. Remember your forgiveness of, from sins. You have forgiveness in Yeshua. Now live it out. And what Schlatter would say is that the more opportunity we have as believers to live it out now just prepares us for when Yeshua does come back. And that could be part of God's kindness to us as well. But then he said in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now, just a couple of observations about this verse. This idea that the heavens will disappear with a roar. I think when we think we hear the word roar, we think of a lion. But it could be a reference to the divine voice at God's coming back, at Yeshua's return. So it, so again, we've got this reference possibly to the word of God now coming in judgment when he returns. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done on it or in it will be laid bare. And this idea of being laid bare, what, what seems to be happening, this imagery is you know, the heavens and the um, heavenly bodies will be moved out of the way and everything on the earth, meaning the ungodliness of people will be laid open before the judge as he comes back. So when God is bringing judgment, there's nothing that's going to be hidden. And it seems that, it, that in a sense it's this legal type of uh, situation, scenario that's being communicated here. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, verse 11, what kind of people ought you to be? So now we're getting down to the nuts and bolts. <laughs> okay, so then how should we live? And going back to the question of, well, what does that look like for us? How do we take what Peter's message is to this church in the first century and apply it in our own lives? And what he is saying is, you ought to live holy and godly lives. How? As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So what is Peter saying here? Live holy lives. Why? This is not what the, the false teachers are doing. <laughs> They're trying to persuade the believers to live the way that they are living after they have turned from God's word. And Peter's saying live holy lives. Don't you think he's trying to give us some hope to uh, live a godly life and not... To hang in there. It is hard. Look at the false teachers and just say, hey, these are our teachers. I'm supposed to believe what they are telling me. And yet if it's false and you have to go against that, that becomes very, very difficult. And how do you determine whether they're false teachers or true teachers? Well, you have to test the spirit. And see if they're abiding by the God's word. word. Yeah. God has given us his word as something definite that we can turn back. And we said sometime in in the weeks past, you know, the word of God is our most direct communication that we have from the Lord. And so everything we do, everything that the Holy Spirit does, everything that we see in the life of it, it all lines up with what we've got in in the word of God. So if if you think that somebody's teaching something that sounds kind of off, take it to the word of God and see how is it lining up, where is it off. Or is it me that needs to be adjusted? You know, But we always go back to the word. Thankfully, he's given that to us. So that's a big marker. Sharon, were you going to say something else along yeah, those lines? I was asking a question going back to uh, he's, he's coming like a thief. Mm-hmm. That's always been a question in my mind. Because when I think of a thief, 
that's that scary thought of how they surprise you and mm -hmm. come upon you. And to think of God coming back <coughs> in a manner, it's always been a question in my mind where I can never totally put those dots together. Yeah, Yeshua uses this imagery too. Yeah. yeah, about a thief in the night. That I think it is that unexpected element. We don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when a thief is going to hit. No. When they're going to come. So it's going to be unexpected. So what should you do then? Be ready. Just be consistent in living a faithful life and then you'll be ready. Even though he's coming in an unknown hour and an unknown time, we don't know when it's going to happen. And what does a thief do? They take what they want, right? A thief does not take everything. They take what they want. So I'm thinking, you know, he's maybe he's going to take his people. He's going to take his godly people. He's not. And what gives me hope in, in all of this is to know that he's not here to destroy us all. Mm -hmm. it, seems, it feels like he's going to watch out for, for people who believe in him and who genuinely walk with him. Yes, and we don't even just have to rely on our feelings for that because when we do look in chapter 2 that's what he says and we didn't spend time looking at that but when you go back to the, to the verses that Diane you had brought up earlier about uh, in verse 4 and following if God did not spare the angels when they sinned but, then, but sent them to hell putting them into chains of darkness to be held for judgment if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on his ungodly people but protected Noah a preacher of righteousness and seven others if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly and if he rescued Lot described here a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved con conduct of the lawless if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from, the, from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So he's placing fear, but also hope. Yeah, I think that, you know, God is, is loving and he is just, and he doesn't compromise on either one of those. He's both at the same time. So when in the face of unrighteousness, and wickedness, he will bring judgment because he is just. But for those who are righteous, who are pursuing him, not that we're perfect, because Peter even said, "Remember, you have forgiveness of sin. You've repented of your, you know, God. When we're in Yeshua, we have that forgiveness. And that's what makes us righteous, and He protects the righteous in the midst of that. And this is the, this is the thing that the false teachers are calling into question." But what Peter is saying, no, God has, has said that he will do this. And even though it looks right now like these false teachers are having the, having the day, <laughs> and God seems to be asleep, he's not asleep. He's, he's being patient. To, and he's trying to enlighten them to make the right decision, discernment. And he's telling them, you have an intellect, but don't be swayed this way, away from what you've learned. And what have you learned? You've learned the word of God. And that's what he keeps coming back to, is holding on to the commandments of the Lord. Hold on to what God has promised, regardless of what the circumstances look like right now, because this is not the end of the story. And there will come a day when God will make all things right, 
and there will be judgment against the unrighteous. Hang in there and live holy lives. Live out, basically, it's not live out a bunch of rules to look good in contrast to these people who look bad. It is live in harmony with the one who created you because of who he is and because you are aligned with him, live out a godly life because of your relationship with him. If you are trusting in the Lord and his word, then your lifestyle will show it. And this is all, as Diana mentioned it before, when we talk about Catholicism, that's not for another hundred and something years, I don't know when, you know, all that came into play on the dates and all. But the idea is the concept to go back to, go back to all that you've learned that's been written in the Torah. The prophets. Right. And the apostles. Right. Yeah. And build your foundation on that. And I think even the churches today have don't want to do that. They believe in the new covenant. Well, that's part right. of it. The you know, new covenant is that, part of God's say, word. The yeah. confusion that these people who at the time of Peter wanted to bring into the mix, they it's the same confusion today. Well, when we start listening to other voices, if it's not the voice of the Lord, there's always the potential of being led astray. So let's look at the, these final verses in, in Peter, and then I just want to take a couple of minutes to look into Revelation, a couple of passages that also talk about God as the creator of heaven and earth. Starting in verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. So again, there's nothing new under the sun. Many of these churches were facing the same kind of struggles and difficulties. Jumping down to verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in what? The grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. When we flip over to Revelation chapter 10, I think that's in your in your notes. In, in Second Peter, we find that uh, it seems that the Lord is delaying his judgment out of his patience for us, yep. waiting so that more will come to repentance. Well, now when we get to Revelation chapter 10, John describes this vision he sees beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with the rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. Do you hear some similar themes? Again, if we had more time to talk about all the, the imagery in Revelation. We could really get into some of this stuff. But hopefully some of it's sounding familiar. A cloud is very much related to the presence of God in the Old Testament, even the fiery pillar when the Lord is traveling with the people in the wilderness. So this is a message from the Lord, from, from God. Then when we jump down to um, 
verse 5. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, if we kept reading through Revelation, we would get to that, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced where? To his servants, the prophets. So again, here we have a clue that there is a time when there will be no more delay. It's, it's done. Now is the time for judgment as based on what? What we've known from the prophets, what God has spoken to us through the prophets. It's coming to, it's coming to pass right now. Well, at least at some point. Um, <laughs> when, when that now is, we still don't know, but it is going to happen. <laughs> then when we flip over to chapter 14, we again had this reference to God as creator of heaven and earth. We'll just skip down to verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live where? On the earth. To every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice. Again, does that sound familiar to Second Peter 3, the roar? He said in a loud voice, what? Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So what are we to do as we wait? Fear God, give him glory. And when his hour of judgment comes, we'll be ready. And worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Yes? The other thing that, you know, I was sitting here thinking about was in Second Peter 3, in 18, it says, instead of growing in the grace, instead keep growing in the grace and knowledge of love and of and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Yeshua. And I mean, it's it's just interesting because just get to know more about Him and yes. how gracious He is. It doesn't say get to know more about Him and how powerful He is and how judgmental He is and how this. Get to know His grace. You know, I mean that. So just acknowledge, I mean, to me, that's like acknowledge all the one, the grace he, he gives to you, he pours on you. Yeah, yep. And we saw both, both the strong hand of God's judgment and also his grace and his love and mercy throughout Israel's history. From the Old Testament as we've moved forward into the New Testament and to then this point here. That, yeah, it's God... God loves his people and wants to be in a relationship with us. And we need to get to know him. We need to grow in that relationship with him, knowing that in Yeshua, we, are, we, we do experience the grace of God because Yeshua has paid for our sins already. And that's why it's so important for us to continue to walk in humility, repent whenever we encounter sin, and experience his grace as we grow in the knowledge of him. Yeah. So... Um, Rabbi wants to make an announcement, and then I think we're... Okay. 
Lord, we do thank you that your word is true and that we've seen that from Genesis to Revelation, that you are moving things forward. You are unfolding your plan of salvation um, to redeem and reconcile all things to yourself. Thank you for Yeshua HaMashiach, our Savior and Redeemer, through whom we can experience forgiveness and walk in your grace. That all these, these fruits of the Spirit that Peter referred to, this virtuous, that we can live that out, not because we have to figure out how to grunt it out in our own effort, but because you give us the ability as we walk with you um, to live out these things. But it's important for us to cling to you in the process, to believe your word, to stand firm in your word, and not be swayed, not be led astray. By false teaching. So I pray, Lord, that our love for you and for your word would grow, that we would be motivated to walk in the knowledge of who you are and in your grace, that we would be ready for um, whenever it is that you are going to be returning. We pray these things in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Amen.